We must search for what is truth. You doubt me. Seek proof. What is truth? And what is God? The first duty is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth. Then here is the proof you seek. You don't really want an answer to that question. Welcome to the AXPX Podcast, Season 4, Episode 2. I am Sean Dreger. Thank you for listening. Thank you all for checking out last episode. It was really fun talking about Second Naivete. And had a lot of great response on that episode. We're probably going to do a follow-up because that subject is so dense. So, keep checking back with us. I'm sure going to be uh, revisiting that. But today we're going to change it up a little bit. We are talking to Richard Garriott. Many have said he's the father of the MMO. So we'll be talking with him about video games. And he's been to space. So it's video games and space travel on today's AXPX podcast. Some of my most memorable moments of reflection happened on late summer nights in Iowa. We lived on the country, away from the city lights. I'd pull my car over to the side of a desolate gravel road, sit on the hood, and stare up at the stars. Space. It fascinates us all. What's out there? Was this all part of a grand design? felt so small against the backdrop of a beautiful night sky. The world goes from being effectively infinite to being absolutely finite and in fact relatively small. Weather, erosion by water and erosion by wind, eons of uh, tectonic plate movement, all that you see with uh, fairly intimate detail. But I have to tell you that seeing how overly occupied the fertile places were by people really is what was the most impactful of all the things I saw from space. I was able to sit down and talk to Richard Garriott, a game developer, an entrepreneur, an adventurer, a space traveler. In 2008, he was able to travel to the International Space Station as a passenger and spend 12 days in space. Well, we're talking with Richard Garriott uh, about many things. I, I Initially, my whole plan for this podcast episode was to uh, do some sort of flat earth conspiracy podcast. We'll you know, get somebody you know, who's been into space and then we'll get a few other flat earth people and you know, I would record interviews. Sadly, none of the flat earth people got back to me. Richard, so I couldn't do that. Uh, Makes you suspect of their competence. <laughs> it does. I emailed quite a few. So, but then I started reading more and more about about your work, your space travel, and saw that you had a book out. And then you you had mentioned you were speaking at South by Southwest in Austin, and I was like, "There's a lot more 
to discuss here. So I think we're going to be fine. There's plenty to talk, to talk about. So thank you for, for joining me and letting me kind of grill you with some questions. And Absolutely. You know, my, my pleasure to be here with you. Uh, obviously, uh, I was excited from the get-go on the topic. Uh, as you might imagine, uh, you know, I, I get a lot of challenges on Twitter on this exact subject. Or when people hear Flat Earthers talk, they will often forward them to me to continue the conversation. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I was excited about the first topic. But of course, I'm uh, even more excited to talk about video games and the commercial space flight. Uh, yeah. Now I think it's become, you know, not only have I done, but it's becoming a bigger, bigger deal going forward. Uh, and of course, the true nature of reality and uh, and why some smart people seem to uh, you know believe some uh, uh, silly things uh, you know is a key uh, issue. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm I'm assuming you can, it's safe to say that you have seen the Earth uh, from afar and you can confirm that it is a sphere. Absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just as a basis, we're going to put that to bed. You know, put, you can put that one to bed. You know, first of all, you, you know. Uh, uh, not only would just the physics of spaceflight not at all be possible if it wasn't a sphere, but uh, but yeah, you go all the way around the Earth every ninety minutes, and uh, uh, and 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 not only does the math uh, match the visuals perfectly, but uh, but you get that proof every every ninety minutes. You literally have gone all the way around the Earth. You come back <laughs> to approximately the same point, but the Earth is is uh, you know rotated an hour and a half of its twenty four hour rotation. So you get a slightly new strip each time you go around the Earth, uh, and that adds up to uh, you know really ultimately seeing the entire Earth uh, mm-hmm. edge to edge, pole to pole. Not you don't quite see the North and South Pole with the nominal inclination of the space station, but close enough. And uh, uh, yeah, so you get a, a very very good understanding of the totality of the sphere of the Earth. I want to get into the space flight stuff more because I, I have questions, and I think it o- can open up more kind of philosophical um, questions and and just how, you know, pondering our own existence here on the sphere. When I threw out to people on online, I said, you know, I would like to talk to someone, either a scientist or someone who's been to space or something. And one of my acquaintances online recommended you and, and I hadn't really done too much research. And I just uh, looked at everything. And I contacted you and started digging more and more into your story. And then I saw Ultima come up and I'm like, this is like, I never got into MMOs myself. I, I knew plenty of friends who did, but I believe I played one of the early non MMO versions of Ultima. I remember that rat cause I watched, uh, this, the documentary on Amazon prime about your travels of space. And there's a video of, of that, the rat and you choose the weapon. And, and I vividly remember playing, excellent playing that. So, uh, it's fun to kind of put these together. So when did you start developing the video game, like the RPGs back in the, in the, in the eighties when there really wasn't that many, I mean, there was the tabletop. Well, fact, you know, I actually got my start before personal computers. And so that's actually one of the, uh, you know, interesting or lucky strokes, uh, you might say that I had, um, was, uh, you know, back in the, you know, before you we were born, uh, you know, back in the, at, in 1975 in particular, uh, the, uh, uh, the school I was going to, the high school I was going to had a, had a teletype, uh, you know, a computer that would use you know, much more primitive than the Apple II sitting here behind me. Right. It, it, <laughs> it, it read strings of, uh, strips of paper tape with holes punched in them was how you programmed. And it was connected with an acoustic modem with a, you know, a, a, a rotary telephone, uh, yeah. to, uh, a, a, a mini computer, uh, that, you know, uh, runs much slower than your wristwatch. 
And uh, uh, but, uh, you know, it, I wrote games on this machine for four years. And so uh, for four years, I was creating games that were a lot like the Ultima series. But there was no way to publish them at that point. There was no market. There was no store that you could go buy strips of paper in that had programs <laughs> pre-written on it. And so I neither could buy nor sell uh, any programs for this uh, machine. You just did it yourself. But then as soon as this, the machine that's behind me came out, the Apple II, suddenly it had graphics. Uh, I could take this text game that I had made and put it in three-dimensional graphics. I could, uh, you know, not only that, but the personal computer stores where you could buy these things were, you know, uh, you know, eager to have something to sell for them. And in fact, you know, this machine, this Apple II, that was a $3,000 machine back there when it yeah. first came out. That's, you know, even today that would be considered pretty darn expensive. And the only software you could buy for it when it first came out were things like a checkbook balancing software, a recipe card file manager, and, uh, you know, maybe some really crummy word processor kind of thing, uh, which I guess compared to typing out things on a typewriter would still be a little better because you could, you know, spell correct uh, yourself, uh, you know, before you hit print. But, uh, uh, but, but, but the stores and people were eager to find things that would justify a $3,000 expense. And so these little games that I was making, like a Calabeth that's sitting here right behind me, that's kind of the Ultima precursor there right behind me. Uh, that uh, I wrote that in you know 1979, 1980, and uh, uh, that game sold uh, uh, first out of the store where I was working, and then later it was distributed nationally. They sold about 30,000 copies of that. Uh, I, I received as a royalty about five dollars per unit, and if you do that math, that's 150 grand <laughs> for a high school senior. When right. when that was two or three times my dad's salary as an astronaut, and so uh, right. you know it was it was obviously a uh, a, a strong beginning to what uh, ultimately became not only a, a obviously a really strong career for me, but the beginnings of an entire industry. So I, w I was there and part of literally the beginning. Your father was an astronaut and your mom uh, was, was an artist, correct? Was she a teacher or? Uh, yeah, exactly right. She both produced and taught art. And, uh, and as we've discussed, you know, my dad was a super scientist astronaut type. <laughs> and so to me, when you look at computer games, they are that is that is the definition of the quintessential high tech art, and I got all the high tech stuff from my dad. I mean, he was constantly parading, you know, na literal NASA experiments through the through the living room, you know, at night. And my mother was always introducing me to new forms of art and taking me out in nature and you know appreciating the grandeur of the reality in which we lived. So uh, also sort of an explorer on my mom's side as well, and uh, uh, and so I was the kid who. You know, some of my siblings are more like my mom or more like my dad, and I'm right down the middle. And so, uh, <laughs> right. I, 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 but, uh, but it, it's, it's, you know, looking back at it, it's not surprising that I would be well prepared for the emergence of computers and in particular to use them to make computer games. You get the Ultima series going, uh, you become Lord British. Indeed. That was a very strong part of your your persona with this uh, the role playing game, especially once it rolled out into MMO form, and you were a player as well. Well, what's interesting is the Lord British thing goes back even to before the game behind me, okay. and so where that came from is, you know, for me writing computer games was an homage to the paper and pencil games that I was playing also at the time, like Dungeons and Dragons, and so my character in Dungeons and Dragons was British or Lord British, and. That nickname was given to me by my early D&D friends because I was born in England. And so it turns out the British is factual, uh, although I only lived there for about two months. So obviously I don't have a British accent. 
Um, but as a nickname, I kind of liked it and it stuck and it, you know, kind of it was an homage to the, this part of my actual history. And so uh, uh, and so when I started writing computer games, I was doing it, you know, as a as a uh, a digital gaming session for me and my friends. It was not meant to be marketed. It was never meant to be sold. It was just for me to play with my friends around the kitchen table. And so, of course, Lord British, the character was part of it. And, and so Lord British was not only the author, but also a character even in the very first game. But uh, uh, what also what I found fun is that uh, throughout Ultima history and frankly, still to this day with Shroud of the Avatar, uh, one of the things that people have the most fun either doing or attempting to do is killing Lord British. And so uh, I, I learned that from an early age uh, based on the, quote, fan mail I might have received. But then uh, later on down through the years, uh, you know, especially with the online game, you could actually see it happening. And I'd have to, you know, defend my character, defend myself uh, more strongly for the years. <laughs> so when did the desire to for the space travel come into play? Because I know that you so pretty young, you found you earned some money and you were investing money, figuring out ways to spend that money, um, probably a lot more responsibly than I would have if I was that age. So w- when did you get the idea that I'm going to try to go to space? When did that? Well, yeah. So, well, first of all, let me dispel one more thing about the responsibility. I, you know, I have <laughs> more than my share of irresponsible spending of that money. Uh, you know, I went through a fast cars phase. Uh, okay, okay. I went through a, you know, eating out and drinking plenty of alcohol phase. Uh, you know, I, I, so I, I've I've done I've done I've done the bad things too. Uh, okay. uh, but uh, and my wife would argue that I'm not that much more responsible now than ever. But you know, still <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, you know for me, you know, I think every kid grows up for at least part of their life thinking, you know, I'm gonna when I grow up, I want to be a astronaut, uh, policeman, fireman. Uh, dinosaur hunter, you know, there's a standard pantheon of which astronaut is one of the key ones. But when you grow up with a parent who's an astronaut and literally all your neighbors are astronauts, it just feels more practical, right? It feels like something that's not, you don't, you don't need to give up on it when you get a little older. Um, for me though, the kicker, the thing that made me solidly, absolutely positively state that I am going to fly myself into space was when I was told by a NASA doctor that I couldn't. And so I was about, okay. you know, eight to 10 years old when, when I started to need glasses. And one of the NASA doctors, you know, was like, hey, Richard, you know, hate to be able to break it to you, hate to be the one to break it to you, but you are no longer eligible to be a NASA astronaut. And he just was whatever, because nobody, almost no one is eligible to be an astronaut in one way or another. And so he didn't think he was telling me anything I wouldn't have already, you know, wouldn't be true for most people anyway. Uh, but to me, it was like, you are being kicked out of the club that not only is your father in, but your neighbor's fathers and all the other kids' fathers in the neighborhood were also in the same club, but not me. And I was crushed. I was like, wow, you know, who are you, doctor, to be the gatekeeper to space? You know, if I can't go by your rules, I'm going to have to make my own rules. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, of course, at the age of, you know, 11 or so, uh, you know, you don't do much about it. But, but really, I had that belief since then. From that day on, if you ask friends, family, anybody that knew me long before I was even successful in games, you know, what is Richard going to do? What, amongst the things Richard's going to do, what, what, what are those things you, you know he'll do in his lifetime? And they might have said, you know, computer games wouldn't have been on the radar yet because they didn't exist. But they would have already said, Richard, if you ask him what he plans to do, he is going to find a way to get himself into space. And so as soon as I had money, after blowing a bit of it, 
I, <laughs> I began to look at ways that I could invest to open up commercial space flight, frankly, so I could go. But I also knew that it wouldn't be possible for me unless I helped bring into existence sort of a, a revolution of how the industry was architected. I mean, it, it, you couldn't do it as a one-off. It would have to be done with a system that was in place to allow civilians or commercial people to fly that didn't meet the glasses requirement. And so, uh, uh, you know, it, it took me 30 years to pull it off, but ultimately it worked. So you went to Canada to get uh, the LASIK surgery done. Before it was approved in the United States even, yeah. Yeah, so that, that was one way to show that you were able to do this. So, um, so you, I mean, you went through some intensive training just to to do this. I mean, you had a surgery done uh, so you can meet certain requirements or just so there would be less, uh, you know, less problems that could happen. It, it, it's ridiculous. So I have come close to going and had the rug pulled out from underneath me many times. So uh, first, the, the first serious way that I thought I might have made it was I invested in a company called Spacehab and they actually did produce this uh, pressurized module to fit in the back of the shuttle. And the plan was to outfit it basically like a double-decker bus and take about 40 passengers at a time into space. And the module was built and it flew many times. And NASA used the module for tons of experiments. But then when it came time to outfit it like a double-decker bus, they said, forget it. We're not taking you private citizens. That's not on our <laughs> that's not our business as a government entity. So sorry, but no. And so the company worked. But the goal did not work. That was close. That was close attempt number one. Then after we started the XPRIZE and Zero-G and Space Adventures and eventually negotiated with Russia to be able to take passengers, I was going to be the first private citizen to go in the year 2000. I actually said the flight was going to be in 2001. But if you remember what happened about 2000, 2001, that's when the Internet stock market crash occurred. Mm -hmm. And so my ability to pay for the seat that I'd finally arranged after 20 years went away. And so I had to sell the first private citizen seat to a guy named Dennis Tito, who became the first private citizen of blind space. Then in 2008, I finally recouped you know, myself, rebuilt my finances again, now could afford it, started paying for it. Well, first of all, what's happening economically in 2008? The real estate crash. Uh, yeah. So by the way, I'm going broke again. And so actually there's a risk <laughs> that I won't be able to fly because I won't be able to make the final payments. Um, but then I also go into the medical training and they find that even after I've paid millions of dollars, which you will not get back, they find a, that I'm missing a vein in my liver, which means that one lobe of my liver is sort of a dead-end blockage, which on Earth is irrelevant. But in space, if, in space, if there was a depressurization event, that could create internal bleeding, which you could not detect or stop, and so you would die. And so first they gave me a call and said, you're off the flight. You're scrubbed. You don't get to go. You're out. You lose. You lose your money and you lose the flight. And then a couple hours later, they called me back and said, we have a plan, but the plan requires that you immediately go into surgery and you remove that lobe of your liver. And then a few weeks later, you have to prove in a, that you can survive a high G centrifuge run without creating internal bleeding. And so I went under the knife immediately. I have a scar now from my sternum to my belly button to the side of my body where they opened me up and then cut through all my ab muscles to get down inside there and eventually took out this lobe of my liver, uh, which was uh, obviously very painful and had a significant recovery time, uh, but ultimately succeeded. But I even had NASA try to 
uh, argue about me going on this flight up until three days prior to launch. Three days prior to launch, there was still wow. that NASA was going to kibosh my activities. Wow. There is a documentary on this. It's called Man on a Mission. If you if you haven't seen it, uh, listeners, check it out. It's definitely worth watching. It details your whole uh, experience going up there. You, you finally made it up there. So after all this time, like you find yourself like you you have you have launched and you're on your way into space, uh, a couple rotations around the Earth, and then you guys dock with the uh, International Space Station. The the footage is incredible in in the documentary because it shows everyone watching the rocket go up, and and it's emotional. Like there you guys go, and you're off the planet. Your family was there, uh, another one of the astronauts, his wife and kids were there, and it's just an emotional moment once they kind of realize, well, he's in space, you know, it's uh, it's just, it was, uh, and I never really, I, I never really thought about it that way, like, you know, kind of their perception is just, in a way, like, you're not here anymore. <laughs> through something that is proven to be statistically uh risky yes. obviously yeah and so that's a big part of also i think uh, you know th th there's a there's a whole complex stack of emotions that are happening then first of all you know it's exciting you know i don't care how you slice it being in or at you know from the inside or the outside it's pretty damn exciting to be at a rocket launch. And yeah. by the way, in Russia, when you're on the outside, you're really close. <laughs> Unlike on the U.S., you're miles away. In Russia, you know, I've stood a few hundred meters from the base of the rocket as it launches. Wow. So it's really close. Uh, deadly, literally deadly close if something were to go wrong. Uh, and of course, if you're on the inside, that's, you know, even, you know, you're even more involved in, in what's going on. And <clears throat> so first there's that excitement. Then there is... Um, you know, the extremity of what's happening, you know, you're going to burn, you know, 90% of the, of the mass of that vehicle is kerosene and liquid oxygen. That is, you know, an explosive of monumental proportion that is going to be metered out in a way underneath you to create this controlled explosion, which again has this level of extremity and violence that, you know, on the inside or the outside is amazing to watch and is made to be part of. But then, then, of course, there's the risk of, of, it, of it going up, the statistics. Then you go, you know, if this goes well, you are going to be propelled to 17,000 miles an hour. And you are going to take this ride that is going to stop, start sitting still on the ground. And in almost exactly eight and a half minutes, so less time than it takes to get to altitude on, an, on a jet plane, uh, you will go from sitting still to orbiting the Earth at 17,000 miles an hour. And so... You know, what you get inserted into, if all goes well, is still something just mind-bogglingly extreme. Mm -hmm. And so in my case, you know, when we finally made it to orbit and the engines turn off and the vehicle begins to free, free tumble for a little while, because once they turn it off, they don't, they don't turn on any motion control uh, machinery for a little while. And so for a little while, you're just sort of tumbling in space. And... When the vehicle tilted over and I can see my first view of the Earth down below, you might think that this is the moment where I'm going, ta-da, I made it. <laughs> it took 30 years and look at the beautiful Earth down below me. Ha-ha, I made it. Nobody stopped me this time. 
And uh, uh, but in my case, there was actually a different thought that came into my mind first. And that thought was, wow, we are not nearly as high up as I thought we would be. You know, 250 <laughs> miles up it doesn't, you know, you still look pretty close. And right. as it's tumbling, I'm going, I sure hope we are in a perfectly circular orbit, because if we are not in a perfectly circular orbit, we're going to re-enter again, yeah. you know, really soon or maybe 15 to 20 minutes later, and that's going to suck And it, if that were to be the case. And so I actually watched out the window, and I knew no alarms were going off, no one was concerned, so I knew we must be on the proper orbital path, but there was still sort of this itchy feeling in the back of your head that I really want to keep my eye off that window. <laughs> Just well, in case. I have anxiety just lifting off in a plane. I couldn't imagine, you know, <laughs> orbiting around the earth and, you know, just kind of hoping you don't get sucked back. I mean, that's, <laughs> I couldn't yeah. even think about that. But, but once you settle in after a few orbits, <laughs> then you're going like, okay, now we're here to have a great time. And right. of course uh, you do. The mathematics involved are just, are just incredible. And, and you being along for the ride and not responsible for any of the calculations, did that help or did that cause a little bit of anxiety? Oh, no, no, no. You know, now everything's handled by computer. And yeah, so, okay. but, but, yeah. but we are second guessing all of that stuff. And so actually on board as a crew, we actually have in our flight data files, we have independent verification of every line item that the computer is doing. And so that's actually one of the things that we do as we're going through the checklist is, is we know that if we launch at this time, which is the time we're supposed to launch, you know, these are the calculations that have previously been made by a bunch of people on the ground that the computer better be showing on its uh, dash as to, you know, how many, how much time the engine should burn before you turn them off. But, uh, but there's still things, you know, you, you, you think about the precision of that insertion. You, you have to be at exactly the right place at the exactly the right speed, or you're not going to be able to mate up with the space station. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they somehow managed to do that with incredible amounts of precision. I mean, uh, to me, that's one of the things that to this day, I'm shocked by it, but especially if you go back 30 years ago, how they did it 30 years ago without the amazing level of, you know, sensors and stuff we have now, uh, is, yeah. is even more. Amazing. Yeah. So you made it up to this, the space station and how long were you up there in the international space station? I, I was on board the ISS, uh, just, uh, just under two weeks. So you're up there in the space station, you're orbiting around the earth and everything is going on down below. I mean, where I, I'm not sure where you where you stand as far as you know either religion or philosophical worldview background, but how did that affect your current worldview before you went up? What, what was going through your mind up there? Yeah, so I'm I am not a religious person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm uh, uh, you know uh, uh, science minded uh, uh, in totality mm-hmm. uh, type of an individual. That being said. Uh, you know, it's very difficult not to find uh, it to be very moving to be up there. Uh, and uh, and let me give you let me kind of give you a little stack of sort of these uh, somewhat spiritual, somewhat emotional kinds of uh, feelings that you have uh, with your presence. So even before I'm, I'm going to end with something, I'm going to take this to something called the overview effect. But I'm going to start with something much more salient about just the practicality. You know, w- when you're up here. First of all, it's incredibly joyful. You know, you are you are floating around like Superman 24 yeah. hours a day. Uh, you know, the rules of the laws of physics have literally changed before you. And out the window is this incredibly beautiful earth that is spinning down below you. And even as you look out that window to other parts of the spaceship that you can see as well, the space station, you can see other parts of it out the window. 
it those other parts are surreal. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you if you look at like if I'm looking behind you in your room, I can not only see that keyboard behind you, mm-hmm. but on the wall behind the keyboard, I can see the metal struts coming down behind it that are in the shadow of the keyboard. Right. And the reason why I can see those things that are in the shadow is because some light is bouncing off the white walls and a little bit off your floor. And so even though there's no light under your keyboard, there's enough bounce light in your room to illuminate the things that would otherwise be in shadow. Mm-hmm. But in space, there's no bounce light. So in space, if you look at the space station, the side of the space station that faces the sun is incredibly bright. I mean, overly, sharply, harshly, bright, bright, brightly lit. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as you get to around the curve, the point where it's in the shadow, it is pitch, 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 black, 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 nothing more black. And that fades into the blackness of space. You can't even see where the vehicle stops and space begins because they're both black. And so it just looks weird, right? You feel like you're in this beautiful, joyous, but alien environment. And then you get to the point where you also go, you know, on the one hand, it's you know, it's room temperature, it's, you know, 72 degrees Fahrenheit, and there's people on the ground that are managing, you know, all the oxygen and CO2 and temperature and keeping the things running is mostly done by the ground. So you're just comfortably hanging out in your apartment, right, that happens to be floating around the earth. And so in one, in one sense, it's it's very comfortable. On the other hand, you also go, if there is an emergency, no one is going to be here to help you. And, and you think about that and you think about the fragility of this thing you're in. And so, you know, the, the metal coatings that are on the outside of this, the thinnest parts of it are really not that many layers of Coke can thick. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty, I would have never tried this, of course, but I'm pretty sure that if I had a screwdriver in my hand, I could plunge it through the exterior wall of the space station. And so I could create a serious breach with just a swing of my arm. And at every joint, there are valves that you've learned all about that, you know, you could close the hatch and de- depress the other side and kill, you know, yourself or everyone, you know, on board the space station. And there's debris flying around in space that could hit you. There's, there's alarms that go off with some regularity that, you know, uh, that could represent a, a serious hazard. And so you become acutely aware. Well, on the one hand, it feels very comfortable and safe. You just kind of go, wow, you know, I, I really better do well. Mm-hmm. And I'm also incredibly dependent upon my my crewmates, and they are incredibly dependent upon me doing my job right. And so that uh, that weighs heavy. You know, that weighs yeah. you really you really feel that in a way that kind of bonds you with your crew uh, in a way that I would imagine uh, some military folks might feel like in the old Foxhole Brothers kind of thing. Yeah. That, uh, of course, I've not experienced, but in my mind's eye, might be related. Yeah, but. But then the most impactful part of it is looking out the window. That was the one piece of advice my dad gave me when when we went. My my dad actually helped me a lot on my flight. Mm -hmm. He helped me plan all my uh, 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 commercial and scientific work. Uh, he was there when I boarded the vehicle. He ran my mission control team all over the space, and he was even on the rescue helicopter to pick me up at the end. Nice. But uh, but the most important thing he told me, is he, and the way we scheduled my plan, is he said, "Look, you need to whenever it's daylight out and there's something to see, you need to be sitting next to the window so you can 
see the beautiful earth below you. That's the one thing you can remember more than anything else. And boy, was he right. And it's not because of what any one moment looks like. It's because that as you look out the window, it's like this fire hose of information about how the earth works mm -hmm. that is pouring in your mind. Everything from, uh, uh, you know, how clouds form and move and interact with landscapes and temperatures of water to the seams and the tectonic plates that you fly over to erosion by wind and erosion by water all over the earth as it's being scoured by those forces mm -hmm. to the impact of humanity, how we built roads everywhere, dams on every river, you know, roads through every mountain pass, roads through every swamp and jungle, including the Amazon, <laughs> uh, how we're clear cutting and burning fires everywhere, how fires can pollute the entire atmosphere so trivially that makes you immediately go, well, of course our coal power plants and our cars put out enough pollution to fill the tiny amount of oxygen of air that you see around the surface of the earth. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and so that sort of builds up and builds up and builds up until finally one day you sort of just have this epiphany. In my case, it was when you see a place you know well. I knew, flew over Texas where I grew up. And you go, I know the scale of this place because I've lived there my whole life. And I've just been around the earth about a hundred times paying really close attention. And so I now know the true scale of the entire earth by direct observation. And suddenly... You have this physical reaction that's kind of like in the in the movies where they'll dolly a camera back but zoom the lens in to where the actor doesn't change size but the hallway kind of collapses around them, and you have that staring out at the earth. You just and it gives you it literally gives you goosebumps just to even to think about it gives me goosebumps just because of just what an amazing physical reaction suddenly this was to realize I now know the the earth in a way that I've never imagined knowing it. I feel that the privatized space flight is in the space, privatized space industry is is important because I, I only bring up the flat Earth stuff just because it's like recently been in the news and and certain people like sports stars and stuff and it's just this whole thing is like it's, it, it 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 breaks my brain and I don't want to dwell on it too much but when it was only siphoned off to a handful of people can go off into space. And that's governed by a government agency or government agencies. Yeah, I, I, all these conspiracy theories are going to happen. But the more people who can afford to do space travel, the more private companies that can afford to go out in, into the atmosphere and go up and, and do research that's not tied to any government agency. Like, I think that's important. And it's taken a long time to get there, but I think we're finally getting there. I remember you're exactly right. You know, I, I described it to, you know, when I give talks about space, which obviously you might imagine I do periodically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I often describe this as the new golden era of space exploration, of human mm -hmm. space exploration. And, uh, and it's said that for the same reasons you've just described, because, because I think it's important in a number of ways. First of all, it's, enorm it's important to bring back the bounty of the value of space to humanity is going to require a private industry to be a part of it. But also, uh, private citizens communicate differently. Like even even my dad versus me. Yeah. My dad is Spock. I mean, Star Trek Spock <laughs> is my dad. He even came to my wedding dressed as Spock because that was the, our nickname <laughs> for him. So we had a nice. costume soiree prior to the actual wedding, and he was dressed as Spock. And um, uh, <clears throat> the uh, and so if I were to ever ask my dad what it was like to be in space, he wouldn't tell you any story like what I've just told you. Yeah. He'd go. 
oh, it was nominal, you know, a lot like <laughs> the training. Um, you know, uh, scuba diving is a pretty good simulation. Yeah. And uh, and that would be the end of it. And so, you know, I was like, oh, OK, yeah, not exciting, but OK. Right. You know, and, and, and by the way, his explanation is largely accurate, but uh, uh, probably more accurate than mine. But 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 the point is, the, you know, he's not he's not a, a communicator the, his, that his generation. Yeah. The, the reason they were hired, the reason why NASA astronauts are hired is to be test pilots or study some fundamental aspect of science. They're not here to relate this to other people as much. At least they weren't hired for that reason. But my dad's generation, modern astronauts are now more hired as communicators. But back in the day, that was, was even less common than today. But uh, but as you noted, the uh, you know, the, the good news is that a few years ago with a shuttle, we were at peak cost and peak danger. It was one out of 70 chance of dying every time you boarded it. And uh, it was about one hundred million dollars per person to fly in it. Uh, the Soyuz at the time that I flew was, you know, 20 or 30 percent of that. The SpaceX prices will be down to 20 or 30 percent of that. Mm-hmm. And the floor of SpaceX is targeting, you know, one or two million dollars compared to a hundred million dollars. So a hundred times cheaper than it used to be. And then we even can move into more exotic forms of propulsion. It'll take 10 or 20 years. But with external propulsion, you can even get it down to like a hundred grand. And we're now getting, even at a million dollars, people are going like, I can't go with a million dollars. I don't have a million dollars in my pocket. <laughs> but I earned on my own flight, I earned multiple million dollars. Gotcha. And so if I only had to pay one and I could earn four or five, I'm going all the time. Yeah. And I'll bet there's a lot of other people that are willing to work as hard as I'm willing to work who would you know, be fighting now to get those seats. And so we're about to enter a time where it absolutely is and will be profitable to fly yourself to space as an entrepreneur. Not I don't it's still going to it's always going to be too expensive or in the foreseeable future. I think it's going to be too expensive as a true vacation destination yeah. for anything other than ultra wealthy. But uh, but the uh, working in space, living and working in space is now going to become much more common. Yeah, it's going to be a more attainable goal. Like for my kids to say, I really do want to become an astronaut. Right. You know, going to space, it's going to be more verifiable for them to pursue that dream and. And everything, which is which is fantastic. Absolutely. You know, it took 50 years approximately from, you know, Columbus kind of coming across directly across the Atlantic to where after that, it was only government expeditions that went for a while. Yeah. And then finally, East India Tea Company and, you know, private uh, adventures began to be charted to go across. And and that happened because suddenly people could find value, whether it was, you know, stealing gold from the natives or you know whatever else of value they found. But once there were things of value then then you can justify you know commercial expeditions yeah uh, and we're just at that point now with space that's awesome former nasa astronaut owen garriott with his uh, son a second generation space traveler landing about an hour and 25 minutes after sunrise friday morning on the steps of kazakhstan while i had heard that traveling in space could be a life-changing event i honestly didn't expect that to be true for myself as i've been on many pretty amazing journeys in my life. But I have to tell you that travel in space ended up being much more transformative than I ever anticipated. Not only did this journey allow me to fulfill a long life stream for myself, but I hope and believe that that same journey has now flung the doors open wide for others to be able to fulfill their dreams of being able to live and work beyond the confines of the Earth.
uh, back to the video games, uh, a buddy of mine named Chance Glasgow, uh, he did the Call of Duty games, and then now he's forming a VR uh, company, virtual reality gaming. And he was wondering about the possible, like the future of VR and possibly RPGs. Like, do you see like MMOs moving more in that uh, that direction, like Ultima Online VR? <laughs> I am both a huge VR fan, as uh-huh. evidenced by my, the VR hardware I have here in my office. Uh, but I am also, unfortunately, a bit of a VR skeptic. Here's my case for that. So, VR is really cool. And VR is going to be, well, it already is important and it's going to be more and more important. Yeah. And yes, eventually, of course, the matrix will absolutely <laughs> positively exist. And so, uh, you know, we're going to get there. Yeah. My concern is that most of the people predicting it to be dominant soon are, are I believe, multiples of years early. Mm-hmm. And the reason I look at that is over the last three or four years, the next year has always been projected to be $4 billion or so of market. And so 2018 is projected to be a $4 billion market for VR software. Yeah. And But if you look at this, there are only eight products in the history of VR that have earned more than a million dollars. There's only 30 projects in the history of VR that have earned more than, I think, a quarter million dollars. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of that earned has been being paid by the hardware makers. You know, you know, the, the hardware makers have yeah. to have software available, and so they will bundle it with the hardware, and they're shipping them out often for free to their customers. So they go like, yeah, we shipped 100,000 of them for free <laughs> to their cell phone customers, and then they bundled it with some software that they paid the developer for. That is not a market. That is not a retail sustainable market. That's a lot of investment money going in. Mm-hmm. What I don't see yet, and what I'm, you know, and by the way, speaking of Ultima VR, I would love to do Ultima VR. In fact, we've been- It'd be amazing. In- Already uh, specifically about developing sp- literally Ultima VR. Okay. That being said, I think there's still some really important problems to solve, and so I don't have any illusions that I can go make a bunch of money selling VR stuff right now. I think there's still the movement issues and sickness issues, and not feeling having it not feel like about too much of club hands, and <laughs> uh, you know there, there's a, there's a, there's a great many things that are slowly being worked out. Yeah, but uh, but I still think it's more buzz than you know. Then I, I I don't yet see products that I want to buy one and then the next and then the next and then the next. Right. Because I'm compelled to. Yeah. How can we use this to learn as opposed to just uh, just sit there and stare without using any of our brain power? The art form of computer games are still, in my mind, very much in their infancy, and and the technology is still rapidly changing, and so. Back, the fact that it's in its infancy and the bells and whistles get better and better every year right. has sort of trapped a lot of games to be pretty shallow. So yeah. running around and shooting things is still the standard of the art form. And that's to some degree expected because of, of the time and pressures of, of uh, keeping up with the bells and whistles. Right. Uh, but it's also kind of unfortunate that we have, the art form has not matured to tell things that are more literary, things that are more important to the human condition. And I, you know, and to me, honestly, my my motivation as a developer is to, uh, you know, frankly, I couldn't keep up with the young guns that are making all the bells and whistles <laughs> these days. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna beat me at that game. But what I hope that I can contribute into the industry is a care for this deeper relation to between uh, the player, 
the, uh, the players and each other mm-hmm. and the players and the story that I try to tell that I hope are resonating to, with them personally and resonating about the human condition yeah. of life on Earth. And so computers can do that and computer games can do that or art form can do that. But but if you extrapolate this out to, you know, 100 years in the future, you know, b- both the great things will be fulfilled. You know, the power of these tools will aid us greatly. Mm-hmm. But also the risks that you were just describing of steering to the tube ad nauseum for no particularly good reason and worse as AI takes over potentially, <laughs> uh, you know, those those will likely come true also, or at least those yeah. risks, many yeah. of those risks for sure will come true. They already are coming true. And so we're going to get the best of times and the worst of times through this incredible race of technology. But it's up to people like you and me to, you know, point out the good stuff and right. fight off the bad stuff. Right. Sounds good. Richard, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you talking with me. Um, we didn't even really didn't get to your book. I'm sure that, you know, I want to send people towards it, though. The book is called Explore, Create. And then you also, uh, your game Shroud of the Avatar. It's it's actually, you can already play it in pre-release now, and it'll be coming out later this year. Uh, but nice. come and join us in the book or the game. Yes, yes, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm very much interested in checking all that out. Uh, so please, if you want to know more about Richard, uh, check out the book. I'll have links in the show notes to everything um, relating to him. Richard, again, thank you. You've been very generous with your time, and I really appreciate it. Absolutely my pleasure. As we journey to understand our world, remember that we are a very small piece of a very large puzzle. I know it sounds corny, It's easy to believe that we are the masters of this planet, but we are merely stewards of this oblate spheroid we call home. I challenge you to look at the Earth from the perspective of someone who has seen it from afar. We only have one planet hosting our lives. Let's take care of it. thank all of you for listening to this episode hope you guys enjoyed it please if you feel like you want to support the podcast check out our patreon patreon.com slash the axpx if you're a patron you'll be able to hear all these interviews 100% uncut so for archival purposes it's a lot of fun to kind of revisit these interviews that way you can always get a hold of me over at theaxpx.com You can check us out on Twitter at TheAXPX. I want to thank our musical contributors for today's podcast, the Candle Park Stars, of course, for providing the intro and outro. Music throughout the episode was provided by Kovatic. Check them out at kovatic.bandcamp.com. Music also provided by Jay Elliott. Check out his music at jelliot1.bandcamp.com. You also heard a few excerpts from Richard Garriott's documentary, Man on a Mission, Richard Garriott's Road to the Stars. It's available on Amazon to rent. So check that out there. There will be links in the show notes. Talk to all of you next time. Bye-bye.